Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Greetings, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel Buck Haberichter, a faculty instructor at the U.S. Army War College and one of the editors here at War Room. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Today's discussion centers around the Pacific Theater. With me in the studio are the members of this year's Indo-PACOM Research Group, and our conversation will focus on Army theater design in the Indo-PACOM Theater in 2028. Uh, Joining me today is uh, Nate Fryer, Associate Professor of National Security at SSI, and Dr. Dana Tucker, who is a student in the Resident 19 class and one of the primary researchers. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. So, first and foremost, thanks for taking time to discuss this today. Uh, I guess the, the easiest way to start this is to ask the question, who chartered this research in the first place and why? So, I think it's not a, it's, it's, it's not a short answer, but it, I think I would like to, you know, I'll tell you the pathology of how we got to this work. I mean, we actually started work on uh, the Indo-PACOM AOR really four years ago when we started doing uh, gray zone research. Um, in, in similar fashion, it was an integrated sort of faculty-student team that uh, brought in representatives from across the college. And we spent time on that, on that project actually looking at both, the, or not both, but at the PRC specifically, Russia and the Iranians, um, as examples of sort of gray zone actors. What we learned in that research, frankly, is that competition was changing and that U.S. vulnerability to rival competition was changing fundamentally. And it carried us into the next year to do some very high-impact work on risk and enterprise-level risk in the defense in the defense world. Um, and what we've learned along the way, if we are being competed with in a different way, if risk, therefore, is characterized differently, then what is the nature of that competition? That next year, we um, did some deep in- research on uh, what we came to call hyper-competition, and we basically concluded that the United States had entered a period where Uh, It no longer possessed permanent advantage across competitive domains and contested spaces and was instead in the midst of uh, what Richard Devaney, a a, a researcher at Dartmouth, calls hyper-competition, which is really a state where you're in, basically, you're in a a persistent struggle for transient advantage and and and, and a struggle to find that transient advantage and exploit it when you get it. As a result of that work, basically, we decided to stay in the Indo-PACOM AOR because the real sort of crux of hyper-competition was in Indo-PACOM. And actually, we're fortunate enough to be asked by the Secretary of the Army to drill down into the Indo-PACOM AOR and look at where the Army, the United States Army, should be. Not just physically where it should be located, but what it should be doing and what mission should be should it be performing within a joint context uh, in Indo-PACOM at 2028? So we're working for the SEC Army specifically. So what is it specifically about design that you're looking at? So I'll start, and then I'll pass over to Dana. I mean, I think that um, we actually did a little bit of mission analysis, to use a good military military word, and we identified based on what the Secretary of the Army really was asking for. He was, uh, he was asking for us to look at how the Army in general, but really how the joint force overall should look at the look at the, the, the future competitive environment in the Indo-PACOM EOR and our response, to, our collective response to it along five what we call elements of design, strategy and operational concepts, 
forces and capabilities, footprint and presence, authorities, permissions and agreements, and mission command arrangements, right? So that's really what we're looking at. That's what we're diving down to. It's a very big mission. Um, but so far, we've been, been coming up with some really great insights. I know Dana may have some more to say on that. I think uh, part of what we're looking at also with uh, what, what Secretary Esper was asking is some compare and contrast. There's a complementary study going on with UCOM. And so what is it about what we would suggest and recommend that the Army be postured to do relative to how we might do the same things in another area? Uh, and, and so with that, it, it's kind of what are the roles that are most appropriate? How can the Army best participate in a joint fight uh, with, with the other services? So we were talking earlier, Nate, that you, you've done a great deal of traveling with this. Uh, what is it you've found so far as you've been out there in the field? I, I, have, I have time in Europe, and I've got time in the, in the Pacific Theater as well. And obviously, culturally, the, the Pacific Theater is far more diverse, I think, than anything you see in Europe. Well, yeah, I think that I think the challenge is different as well. I mean, I think that's one of the that's one of the you know maybe big takeaways. I mean, if I can start from sort of the gross, grand, strategic, theoretical sense and work my way all the way down to the army. I mean, really, what you're looking at in Europe is you're looking at sort of a recalcitrant, declining power that's that that has actually developed, um, you know, a set of capabilities and methods that is is on the margins really causing the United States a great deal of trouble, but in the end is not a pacing threat for the United States. It will not, for example, probably um, replace the United States from a, uh, from a systems perspective as the arbiter of the most consequential out outcomes worldwide. The Pacific theater, on the other hand, completely different story. I mean, you are really talking about a rising rival great power that is you know, not bulletproof or infallible, but certainly has all the resource capabilities, the wherewithal and the vision to, at least in an Indo-Pacific context, supplant the United States as, you know, the security arbiter of choice mm -hmm. in that region. So from that perspective, I think, you know, we, we know that we're dealing with a very different theater um, in the Indo-Pacific AOR. As a result of that, really, um, the... Let me first just say that the nature of the competition, we're already, look, we're, you know, we're already in an intense armed rivalry in the Indo-Pacom AOR. And by armed, I don't mean it's, you know, it's, it's active conflict, but we're really, you know, faced with a, with a, with a near or peer rival, near peer or peer rival in that region that can cause us a great deal of trouble today. It's not just a future problem. Right. And, and, and that actor is actively competing right now for, you know, is, is competing in that space and is uh, slowly sort of chipping away at U.S. position, largely as a re result of our own self-imposed risk constraints, to be perfectly honest. And so, you know, broadly, that's what we're finding. But I'll let Dana comment, and then we'll, I think we can come back to some more mm -hmm. specifics. Yes. Yeah, so, so as we think about a free and open Indo-Pacific for us, uh, as we look at partners, when you ask about visiting and what are we learning from uh, partner countries, uh, and between talking with them directly and also with our State Department partners, they, they call out the position that those countries are in. Uh, and so you've got two great powers that are, are asserting their influence, and these countries in, in many ways are trying to negotiate in between. And mm -hmm. so 
we, how do we work with partners? Uh, th- these individual countries are asking the question of, so whether we prefer the U.S. or, or China in, in one way or another, whether it be economically for security cooperation or what have you, they're still having to sort out, but how do we keep from leaning so far one way that we begin to get ourselves in, in trouble with the other great power? Right. And so, so we're working with partners in, in many cases where we've earned a lot of credibility, we have good relationships, uh, and we still have to acknowledge that they're in a position where they're trying to not be pulled so far in one direction that they harm their own interests in the other Got it. Yeah, and I would just add, I would add to that. So let's like take it down to the military level because I think that's really important. You know, the the United States military has for so long been so used to advantage and and uncontested freedom of maneuver and freedom of action um, wherever and whenever uh, the nation chose to employ the, the the U.S. armed forces. That is certainly not the circumstance anymore in the Indo-Pacific AOR, um, and 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 as a result of that, the, the the joint force in general, you know, is really going through a process of identifying how it can. I would go as far as saying how it can re-enter the competition effectively in the AOR and actually employ the military instrument not just as the when in you know in case of emergency break glass but actually actively employ the military instrument on a daily basis to sort of shape the the perceptions and the and the choices of rivals well in the indo-pacom AOR, it's a very complex it's a very complex uh problem and and what we have found is um it's a joint problem it's a combined problem and it is a multi-domain problem, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it it we are being contested in air, land, sea, space, cyberspace, the electromagnetic spectrum, and what we call a strategic influence space. All of those have military implications, all the way down from you know, all the way up from or down from the senior joint force, all the way down through the surface components. And so there's a number of implications for the United States Army in that regard. Dana, do you have? Anything you might want to bring uh, it, up. And another layer of complexity is is the partner countries, uh, in the absence of a NATO-like uh, multilateral agreement, uh, we engage in a number of bilateral agreements. Uh-huh. And so uh, some of these countries have histories where they don't necessarily get along, even though uh, they are aligned with the U.S., they don't align with each other. And, and so we have to negotiate multiple relationships uh, as we do all those other uh, elements as well. So, so there's multiple layers of complexity to the problem as it orients towards uh, that uh, near-peer competitor. Dana's point's very important, too, I'd say, because as it relates to allies and partners and the United States in a combined fashion, we have to become used to federated approaches to collective security in the Indo-PACOM AOR as opposed to uh, multilateral alliance approaches to security. So, for example, what the United States and Japan do to secure our common interests in the Indo-Pacific AOR uh, can be complementary with what the United States and South Korea do to to um, secure a collective interest, but they can't necessarily... Uh, act in unison in a single alliance like fashion in the same way that you can in the UCOM NATO AOR mm-hmm. right and that that is becomes 
a, an interesting dilemma for both the policymaker at the highest level trying to rope together a coherent approach to the theater, but as you know, as complex or even more complex to the theater military commander who has responsibility to actually affect outcomes on the ground. So how, how did you find us postured now in comparison to what you believe we need to get to at, by 2028? Well, at I, least the Army in particular. No, well, yeah, so I'll start with the Joint Force. I mean, in the end, we are, um, we are uh, two words, vulnerable and out of position is the bottom line. Um, I, I kind of return to an earlier point I made. I think, we're, I think our current sort of theater design is predicated on a discredited view of advantage. And we have to become used to, again, this persistent struggle for uh, transient advantage. And that, by definition, speaks to a future that if you want to be competitive, you have to be more adaptable, more agile, more distributed, um, more joint, and more multi-domain. And you have to actually set conditions you have to actively set conditions in the competitive phase of relationships with our rivals that sets you up for a uh, rapid transition to armed conflict if, if in fact that, that, that it comes to that. We're not in that position today, and we need to evolve towards that. Dana? I'd say in addition to that, what we're finding, uh, especially in the case of the Army, is the focus, uh, with good reason, over, over the past while has been focused on Korea. Uh, and as we look at a, a pacing rival in China, uh, the question is, so what should we be doing differently and what is the right uh, point of emphasis in, in, in looking at these different threats and, and where should we be making big bets and, and where do we continue to, to allocate resources? So I'm going to go back for just a second. You, you mentioned distributed. Uh, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with the Pacific Theater, we were often referred to the tyranny of distance. It's one of the greatest hazards, one of the greatest challenges that needs to be overcome by any force in the Pacific. Uh, how much further does a distributed operation, does that even more complicated by that, that tyranny of distance? Well, there's, there's, you know, there's opportunities and there's challenges out there is the way I would put it. I mean, so I'd sort of jump back and talk about the Army for a second and then put it in the context of your question. I mean, we, we, as, we look, as we look forward to 2028, we recognize that the Army has... Um, sort of uh, some tough, some tough choices to make. It has to still cover down on what is sort of a longstanding traditional mis- mission in the defense of South Korea. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's you know a, a, a position we can't compromise on. But at the same time, we understand that the transformation of the PLA, for example, um, makes all of you know all U.S. installations and capabilities vulnerable position forward in the Pacific. And so the the army actually where we're sort of landing in our work right now is that the army really has four transformational roles in the Indo-Pacific and that those fall into what we think will be ultimately a, a very transformational joint concept. And those those roles are the the army is as the grid, um, the army is the enabler, the army is a multi-domain warfighter um, and the Army is a regional capability and capacity builder. Um, the first and the second are going to be fairly countercultural to the Army because what we think in order for greater distribution, agility, and adaptability, as I referred to earlier, in order for those to, 
actually be realized, they're going to have to actually occur on the Army's back. And I don't mean that the Army is going to have to trade capabilities to a sister service so that a sister service can actually become stronger, more capable, et cetera. That might be part of it, but that's not what we're suggesting. What we're suggesting, though, is that the Army does have a foundational role in enabling joint operations more broadly. And as a result of that, uh, distributed operations are going to rely on the Army's ability to aggregate at the right level to, to, to enable the joint force to basically distribute throughout the theater in the event of, you know, um, in the event of armed crisis and execute operations from multiple locations simultaneously to complicate rival decisions, to uh, afford the joint commander more options, um, and, and, and finally to make the force more resilient and redundant. And I'd say it really comes, it's, it's not a foreign concept, but to me, uh, I think of computer networks and the whole generation of, of the concept of, of the World Wide Web was if one node goes down, uh, you've got multiple other nodes and, and the network uh, maintains integrity. And so, uh, so there's a, a strength and resilience in that approach. Uh, and, and as Nate mentioned, it also creates multiple decision points or dilemmas uh, for an enemy saying, I, I, if I use my resources to attack here, uh, what are the results I get out of it? And, and they're, we're putting them on, on uh, if you will, on the defensive and, and trying to regain initiative in that area, uh, to Nate's point, uh, feeling like we're, we will be in periods where there's transitory advantage. Uh, and this distributed network is one way to achieve that as, as you go into, we call them hot and warm and cold zones, uh, and we light up those different areas at different times. Uh, and that kind of conceal and reveal approach forces them to, to think twice before they assume uh, that they can make something happen by taking an area, uh, if you will, into an A2AD. We, we've locked this area down, and now they're stuck. Well, we have other options. So let's be clear, too. The other thing that's very important about this is this, number one, isn't just a warfighting concept, right? It, it really does afford the joint commander more options, whether it be a typhoon or counter-piracy, counter-terrorism. Uh, you know, the, the ability to operate from more expeditionary locations— inculcate into that into the culture of the organization and and also the sister service organizations that the grid enables right will will just make the joint force that much better and it will will certainly have transferable or translatable implications to other theaters around around the world as well and i think that that the other thing that's most important about this idea is that look the prc is competing right now and they're competing for space they they are expanding their own um, they're, they're expanding their own zone of influence or control in a way that will allow them to impact outcomes and, pro, and, and, and present to the United States and its partners fait accompli that are very difficult, very costly to reverse. Mm-hmm. And so our, our, our point is by establishing the grid, by activating pieces of the grid, and by operating the grid in, in what is increasingly called the competitive phase, Will will not only actually sort of give pause and deter more aggressive action on the part of the PRC, right? But it will also actually, at times, seize back some of the space that we may have already ceded, or have thought too risky to seize back, and and, and also provide us a, a number of options that we don't have today. 
Uh, as as we expand that competitive space and and what we define as, as competition includes things like humanitarian assistance, disaster recovery, uh, because we will go to these places and offer that assistance and partner and create uh, stronger partnerships uh, and alliances. But China's doing the same thing, and and so there's almost a a sense of who can do it better and do it in a way that meets the needs of of our allies and partners. Uh, and, and so there are some cases where we can look back and say we earned some points here, uh, but in other cases, because of the nature of bureaucracy and we're slow to act, that, that China gets there first and, and wins points that way. So, Nate, you refer to these as, uh, as expeditionary forces. What do expeditionary forces look like in 2028? That term provokes a lot of images for, for different people in terms of what we've been doing for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, well, we certainly haven't, certainly haven't been as expeditionary as we would like to believe we have been over the last 15 or 20 years. I mean, we've become, we've become used to commuting to commute, quote unquote, commuting to work from, from fixed locations and conducting, you know, albeit very intense operations for individuals and squads and platoons and companies, um, uh, relatively low intensity, you know, counterinsurgency operations, counterterrorism operations in the theaters that we've been decisively engaged in over the last over the last decade and a half or so. Um, expeditionary now means um, the way I, the, the shorthand that I use is that Air Force mechanics and Army cooks got to start learning how to get along together more often, right? And uh, and and I think that. Um, you know, in real, in real terms, in practicality, what that means is that we have to have the ability to sort of, um, hot, warm and cold facilities, um, at, at places and times of our choosing, um, without the benefit of a great deal of, uh, deliberate improvement, uh, l- large amounts of infrastructure brought in, um, very light, comparatively speaking, very light footprint, um, and an impermanence that we're not used to, right? So if you think about, you know, most of these locations that we're talking about being in the grid being largely owned and operated by our host nation partners and only employed in extremists, again, if in response to HADR crisis or counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, CT at the low end, and then, of course, obviously, some high-end warfighting contingency in the theater. If you look at it from that perspective, it requires a greater, a greater amount of inter, uh, uh, interoperability on the part of us and our allies. It requires us to actually exercise this in ways that we haven't done for quite some time. Um, it, involves, it, it involves a great deal of trust between us and our in our um, in our allies, and more importantly, it it really does force us into a level of jointness that we have not yet been forced by circumstances to achieve. So you, you talked earlier about uh, some of the trade offs that are going to be necessary, uh, largely on the army's back, as you as you stated. That suggests a zero sum game. That but what's this really going to cost us in the long run? Is this, I, I hear caretaker teams in locations for the hot, warm, cold concept of, you know, leaving something dormant for some time, but being able to bring it up very quickly, that still requires manpower at, at certain locations, isolated locations potentially. And, and to me that, that thought has a price tag with it. 
Sure. I think I'll let Dana comment on this too, because I know he's looked at the sort of permissions and agreements that are associated with this. But we do hot, warm, and cold right now, or warm, uh, uh, cold, warm, and hot would be a better way to put it, does not necessarily mean 100% manned at any one of those locations at any one time. I mean, if you think about it in this way, sort of your main operating bases around the region, you know, Anderson Air Force Base, Kadena, et cetera, perpetually hot, right? Always manned, always, you know, uh, up to full capacity, always conducting operations, et cetera. But if you actually, you know, going forward, look at those actually as really administrative assembly areas uh, for a more expeditionary posture in, in extremis, uh, then you have to actually have the ability to convert some of that structure, that infrastructure that's present at that currently hot location. You have to have, find a way to actually transition that uh, both human and material um, capacity to other locations to either warm them up or make them hot. Um, you also have to think about the possibility of having your allies make some of these locations hot by themselves and that you're just a tenant um, at, at these locations, but, but we don't necessarily see a big bill where the trade-offs going to come, I think. Um, and we'll see, I mean, we are trying to, we're doing, you know, a bit of a qualitative study, not a quantitative study. And there's certainly a great deal more work to do in this regard, but there will be some trade-offs in compo one, two, and three. And for the listener, that's the, you know, between the reserve and the active component, there may be some trades between what skills, we might need to actually transition to the active component to make this a more viable option for the United States military. That's one area. Another area may be that the the service may have to become comfortable um, uh, apportioning sustainment, protection, intelligence, uh, forces like that permanently to a theater in order to actually have this grid be viable um, in the time and place that you want it to be. And then your your service retained forces maybe are more like your maneuver forces that could be employed worldwide. Right now, we think that's a little out of balance. So there are some trades, but, but the biggest trade, I would say, and I'll turn it over to Dana, the biggest trade is going to be cultural. It's going to be intellectual. It's going to be getting your head around the fact that this is a very different mission than the one that your self-image that you see in the mirror every morning when you get up, uh, than that tells tells you uh and that's going to take i think the army actually is is there to a certain extent as far as the way they look at themselves specifically in a theater context we'll just you know we'll see if we can get the the institution to accept it though it's uh, almost redundant but the one thing that came up to me wasn't a financial cost but the cultural piece of mindset uh the the army saying we we fight and win wars well in this case you're still a warfighter, but you're not the warfighter. And so you aren't running the show, you're enabling, you're supporting, uh, but there will be a heavy uh, air and, and a heavy uh, naval component to this that, that you will be expected to support in, in that joint uh, way. And so a mindset of this isn't an army-centric theater uh, is, is something that we found our army partners in the theater get it. Uh, but to his point, uh, from a from an institutional standpoint, that is a little bit uh, counterculture. Uh, and then a second part of that mindset is that uh, not being in a dominant position. So hyper-competition 
means that you're not always the big dog and you can't always call the shots. And so sometimes you don't have as, as much of uh, the initiative as you would like. And so you're having to think carefully about what are the best ways to get back on top uh, and recognizing but that won't last long either. Uh, and so that's one of the, the things that comes to mind. Uh, we tend to see a lot of BCT-centric thinking and, and as he mentioned, uh, cross-functional teams and uh, cross-service teams, that, that that's something that, the, you know, we're going to have to get comfortable with that operating uh, in that regard. Uh, and I mentioned to be the, instead of the warfighter, a warfighter uh, is, is something that sometimes that uh, we're not always comfortable with. What I would tell you is that the theater from this point forward has to be ruthlessly joint, ruthlessly modular, and ruthlessly multifunctional. I think that's that's very reasonable assessment based on my time there. I, I can see where that's absolutely necessary. Uh, gentlemen, unfortunately, we're running out of time today. Um, this has been a great discussion. I appreciate you taking the time to join me here in the studio. Uh, as a guy who's watched the, the Pivot to the Pacific, uh, this has been a very interesting discussion, and I've enjoyed it greatly. Uh, thanks to our listeners. We hope you join us again the next time on A Better Peace. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.